Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So I'm really excited. I got a good one today. Ginger Z is on the show. Ginger is the chief meteorologist over at ABC. You probably know her most from Good Morning America, although she also does stuff with World News Tonight and kind of all across ABC News. She also has a show, Hearts of Heroes, that airs Saturdays on ABC, part of Lytton's Weekend Adventure. It's a show that looks at natural disasters and the men and women who rescue victims and restore their lives. So uh, she's busy. She was on Dancing with the Stars a few years ago. She's written several books. Her memoir is Natural Disaster. I covered them. I am one. And she's working on a follow-up to that right now. She also has a young adult series called Chasing Helicity. So there's a lot of ground to cover. And, you know, I was thinking back, Ginger's actually one of the people that initially inspired this podcast. I've been following her on Twitter forever, and she's a very active tweeter. And she's been reporting from home for the last several months. Uh, ABC actually set up a home studio for her uh, with like a big LED wall and a nice professional camera. And she's been doing her weather reports from her basement with this LED wall. And I remember when that first went in, seeing her tweets about it and just thinking, that's really cool. And, and really wondering sort of how it all worked and just thinking about how many people does it take to, to run that? Is this, did they set this up so that it's one button and Ginger just presses the go live button and it all works? Or were there parts of it that she had to fiddle with? Was she taking white balances every day and, you know, having to set focus and things like that? I, I just, I didn't know any of that stuff and was really curious. And we don't get too deep into that here, but I was really curious when her home studio setup went in, how it all worked. And I had the same curiosity with all the shows that were continuing to broadcast despite the shutdown. You know, Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon, The View. There were just a lot of shows in that kind of, you know, late April, early May time period that it seemed like we're figuring it out. And I wanted to know sort of how it all worked. So flash forward now, you know, two months into the show. And obviously the, the format of the show has changed a lot. We're not talking nitty gritty technical as much as just sort of how the pandemic is making us feel and, and also what drives us all as creatives in the entertainment and media industry. So it's interesting just sort of to, to come full circle and think back on some of those early tweets of Ginger's from a few months ago and how they motivated me to, to want to start this show in the first place. And Ginger is also somebody that I felt for a long time that I would relate to really well if we ever talked. And I mean, this is like going back like five or six years, just sort of, you know, following her on Twitter and stuff and realizing that there's a lot of weird ways where our worlds didn't quite intersect, but there were weird parallels of just, you know, she grew up in Michigan, I grew up in Ohio, and there's a very specific kind of Great Lakes person that comes from that part of the country that is very different from the rest of the Midwest or the rest of the U.S., so there was always sort of that. And then there's the Disney connection. You know, she, she grew up going to the Disney parks. I love the Disney parks. And uh, we got to talk a little bit about some of that stuff today, too. She's sort of become, you know, one of the people that ABC sends to big openings like Star Wars Land, and Toy Story Land. And I think she went to the World of Avatar. And, you know, just anytime there's sort of a big thing to promote, uh, Ginger and, and Robin Roberts are two of the people that they send most readily, it seems. One thing we didn't talk about that I wish we had had time for was sort of her renovation background. She actually did a series with her husband, Ben, on DIY Network a few years ago of them renovating their own house. 
And, you know, I worked at this old house for 15 years. So that was on my radar as just looking at what other networks were doing in the home improvement space and realizing that, you know, DIY had this really interesting show with Ginger and Ben. So we didn't get a chance to talk too much about renovations. And I've also just, I've been weirdly fascinated always with, with morning shows. You know, I read Brian Stelter's book, I think it's called Top of the Morning, and it's partially what inspired the morning show, the, the show on Apple TV+. Plus. But uh, it was sort of about the horse race between the Today Show and Good Morning America at the time when Good Morning America overtook the Today Show as number one in the ratings. And I talk about it a little bit with Ginger here too, but you know, I grew up with the Today Show just kind of always on as, as background noise growing up. My mom loved that show, and uh, it was a place, like when I was in New York, I would try to go there and, and be in the crowd. I've produced a number of segments now for the Today Show uh, from my time at this old house when we had our hosts on the Today Show. I would prop those. I would write those. I would get the props down in New York and help execute them on the on the day. So I just, I don't know. I've always enjoyed morning TV for some reason. So it was it was great to talk to Ginger. I really enjoyed it. Here is my conversation with Ginger Z. So uh, let's just start by sort of talking about how the last four months have treated you. Is, is it only four months? It feels like much longer. I know. Well, it's it's <laughs> mid-July, right? And we started in March. So yeah. No, I actually thought about that because we got a puppy. Um, we adopted a puppy the weekend before oh, wow. the world shut down. Yep. So kind of like, well, two weekends before the world shut down. So I was trying to think the other day of how old he was. And for some reason, I'm like, oh, definitely over a year now. And then I was like, nope, not yet. I guess we didn't make it. So uh on, on a personal level, it has been life-changing in so many ways. You know, obviously with so many unknowns, it's a very stressful and anxious time that way. Just even for knowing if we'll have a job, if knowing any, like the, like the rest of the world. Sure. Uh, but uh, also because I've suddenly turned into someone who's at home. I've never been anywhere this long in my whole life. Yeah. I've never been with my husband this much. And I've definitely never had this time with my children. So finding all these beautiful parts and finding that I... I can be in one place and be okay, <laughs> you know, because I thought part of me was always running, 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 running. My entire life has been about traveling and uh, exploring and storm chasing. And to actually be settled in one place for a couple of months is both terrifying and the most exciting and best part ever. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I have a seven and four year old and it's, it's the same. I, I logged into my, uh, my JetBlue uh, account the other day just to sort of check. Like yeah. usually I'm like obsessive with like how close I am to getting to mosaic status. And I'm like, I have one flight from February and that's it for the year. And I'm just like, oh, I guess that's the new normal. No, it, it is hard not to look and be like diamond, right? Diamond. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm a Delta. Right. But we buy everything cause we don't really do it. You know, we don't, get specific airlines we right. fly all of them when we fly for work so and then like that's the thing is on, on a personal side it's been such a learning curve on a work side the first six weeks I'd say were probably the roughest just because it was done in my basement I was everything meaning that I that something or six things would go wrong every single morning yeah. you know and so it was extra stressful to try to do all those things. And then they set up like a, a real legit studio and that's been a lot easier. There's still technical things that happen. My batteries will get low and people will freak out because it's 10 seconds before I go on, but I usually get them changed in time. And yeah. <laughs> I've, I think I've gotten, you know, I used to always do everything myself back in 
four different markets before this. So it's just kind of been a return to that. Right. But it does make me incredibly grateful, of course, for all the people that help us usually at ABC News. Yeah. So talk to me about the home studio setup a little bit. You, you mentioned it there. Like, so the first six weeks, like, was that is that a different setup than what you have now? Oh, yeah. So that was just the kind of what everybody's usually working on. It was like a live view, you know, like an app that allows you to broadcast using a microphone, but yeah. with one light or a couple of lights. And and I had a camera after a while, but the camera almost wasn't as good as the phone. And then all within those first maybe it was six to eight weeks where it was just kind of the regular way that people are broadcasting, you know, and if I, if I had anything, because I don't use a teleprompter for weather because I'm a meteorologist. So I just sure, yeah. talk about, thankfully, I don't really need it. But there are times where I do things that are sales related or whatever, and I need to get like on point to the words. So I didn't ever have a prompter, and I thought maybe that should change, especially for big, important things. Just for the look of it, they said, let's come in and see what we can do. And they built a full LED screen in my basement um, with a real camera, a real return, real everything. And, like, the microphone's wireless and just good stuff, you know? Like, it makes you feel a lot more like you're in a studio. So that's been so helpful. And once that went in and I started, you know, getting used to doing GMA from there, I realized this has the potential to do all the things that I wanted to do, but always had to, like, book studio time or whatever for ABC News Live for a lot of the other projects. Like, I'm working on a new climate and environmental weekly roundup. And I just pitched it. I said, guys, I can do it right here. And I can do it with the producer who I work with for all my graphics it's going to rock, you know, like we can do so much now that we have the, now that I have unlimited access to my very own studio. So right. uh, in that way, it's been really liberating. And in terms of sort of like just the graphics appearing behind you and stuff, is that all still fed out of a control room? So that comes from Max Galumbo, who's a meteorologist as well. Him and I work together for now, you know, almost a decade and he is in studio. Um, the videos are cut by Samantha, who's also a meteorologist. She works from home. So her and I are home, but he's in the studio. He has to, to do live graphics that go to me, yep. they have to be in the studio gotcha. to have it taped, to do it. Otherwise, you know, Melissa, who does the evening thing that does the ABC News Live show with me now, she has been able to do it from home. So there's ways to do it from home, but yeah, we've got at least one person usually there. Gotcha. I want to back up for a minute, too, and just sort of talk about, like, when everything started hitting the fan and, like, we all sort of collectively realized that we were in trouble, I think. Like, do you remember sort of yeah. your your last days in Times Square? <laughs> like, what what were those days like? Yeah. Well, mine were cut short even before other people were because that weekend before, the weekend we got Brando, the dog, when we went to North Shore, our son, our two-year-old, had woken up and he had thrown up, which he'd never done in his life, and he had diarrhea later in the day, and I was like, oh, gosh. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know what this is, but like a stomach thing. And he seemed okay through the rest of the weekend. He still had like a little stomach stuff, but we just kind of left it off as that. So I went back to work that Monday, Tuesday. And then I think it was Thursday, my four year old got a headache and a fever. Mm. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. I'm not going to go to work because that's two kids sick. And like it makes no sense for me to whatever it is they have even though everybody's starting to seemingly come down with this thing called the coronavirus in New York. So I didn't go to work that Friday. And then by Monday, I was working from the basement because everybody was starting to think about doing that. And by that Thursday, I got sick. And our nanny was incredibly sick. And my husband was sick. And so for three weeks, we had coronavirus. And so it was like living in the reality that everybody else was. But the very strange part is we were part of the, the group that couldn't get a test, you know how they were just right. not oh, possible yeah. and you could right. wait 
at 4.30 in the morning in New Jersey and you still wouldn't get one or whatever. So I just kept plugging Tylenol and hoping that I'd wake up and, you know, feel better the next day. But there were definitely ebbs and flows and like all of our symptoms matched. And then once the antibody tests were available, we got those and we were all positive. So we definitely had it. Yeah. How long Uh, did it last? It was three weeks. I would say there were definitely points within it that were easier than others you know and there, there, a lot of people talk about this with the coronavirus I thought I was better there were a couple of mornings where I'm like I feel good I can almost go Tylenol free and then it would hit me like in the afternoon it would come down and like my toes to my shoulders would hurt like for mm. me the body aches and the headaches were the worst yeah and it was just this you know reality hit that no it's not over and this thing stays in you for a while so we, we were very fortunate that we didn't have to go to the hospital that we didn't have respiratory you know concerns so bad but i wouldn't say it was fun yeah <laughs> that's wild now I, yeah I'm, now that you're mentioning it i kind of remember seeing this on twitter like a couple months ago but i completely forgot about that but yeah, yeah wow that's that's wild well yeah because it was you know it was weird because we were even before before george and Allie got it before we were too early right. you know like when nobody even knew what was going on so we were really and well the other reason we knew while we had it is two of my son's teachers tested positive mm. so that weekend after I had not gone to work that Friday, we got a note on Sunday saying there's not only not school, but we just want to inform you that two of our teachers tested positive. One of them had been in the hospital. It was, yeah. So we were like, and then when we all were getting sick, we were like, yep. Our wow. two-year-old high-fives every teacher every morning, so yeah. that would make sense. <laughs> right. Well, we didn't know back then. I mean, yeah. that was, I feel like that last week, no. they were kind of like, stop shaking hands if you can do that. But like, otherwise, yeah. And yeah. I'm like, my, my daughter's in first grade, and they greet the teacher every morning by shaking hands. And I remember dropping her off, like, maybe that Wednesday or Thursday, and the teacher started doing, like, uh, like elbow bumps for the first time. And I was like, okay, yep. that's different. But, yeah, like, no one knew that early. It's it's crazy. No, no. So once we had that confirmation, that, and, it, you know, that was the other part, is that mentally what that does to you, to not really know, but to think you do, but yeah. not really know, you know, it, I, I'd say that was hard because you really, and then on top of not feeling well, and I kept wondering, why am I so exhausted that first week that I didn't really know what was going on and I feel like I can't get anything done maybe it's because working in my basement sucks you know and then I realized no it doesn't after I got healthy I'm like I can make this work this is great so you know you I think it even impacted my mood which I've seen a lot of people say too but yeah so this things have been so much better since and now it's just more where do we go next you know like the rest of the world and how long and I think that's that's describing every morning to my four-year-old and my two-year-old why you know the park isn't always where we can go and that has been probably the most confusing for them because they just don't get it nor do they ever know anything different so i guess either this becomes their normal or it doesn't yeah it's weird my four-year-old has some awareness of it like he talks about you know not wanting to get corona and sort of knowing the word corona but that's about it like he's always like can we go to stores now we're like no not really i think you should stay home well that you know so funny is four-year-old knows that he because that was his first headache he'd ever had we'd never had him have a headache so he remembers that part and he knows he had a bad day but his was short he had a couple of days of being sick and then he was done he was healthy but what we found out later is that our two-year-old is really the one that was first because it shows up in young kids as gi Mm. and we had no idea that that was diarrhea and vomit were like how a lot of kids present and his was so bad. What was different was his was so acidic. This is probably not for <laughs> everybody wants to hear. But it was. But it. But this is what should have told me that something else was wrong. His bottom and his genitalia got burned mm. from the diarrhea. That's how. That's how serious wow. the stuff was. 
And so he, being a two-year-old and having all boys around, he thinks it's so funny because he called it penis burn because we had to go. (laughs) (laughs) And so whenever somebody says coronavirus, he'll go, yeah, penis burn. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what? That is the unknown symptom of the world is penis burn. So (laughs) that's yeah, I I hadn't even heard that. But I guess, yeah, that's geez, that's wild. Yeah. I want to talk sort of just thinking about coronavirus. And also, you you mentioned some of the climate change activism that you that you do. Um, I feel like those two worlds are kind of intersecting now with this sort of anti-science notion in the country right now. Like for Mm -hmm. all the work you've done on climate change for a long time, like Mm -hmm. how do you help people? How do you change people's minds? How do you get them to listen to science? Well, that's the thing is I think we as meteorologists and and any climatologist would have an advanced study of this, the psychology of why people don't believe in science because we've been seeing it for decades. I would. I always find that I have the best time to describe it when I take it down to a local level, when I find a study that's specific to their area. For example, I studied boundary layer meteorology in college. You know, we studied one of the, the 1980 Plainfield tornado, Plainfield, Illinois. And I, I would be able to, when I worked in Chicago, I'd be able to talk to people about when you add a lot of asphalt and a lot of pavement where once wild grasses were, mm. you've changed the moisture content and the heat of the surface. Sure. There was a study that showed the dramatic difference in how storms moved in relationship to Plainfield because of the change of our surface of our earth that we did, that humans did. So I usually start with something that's very obvious and that nobody can say that's not true, right? And then I say, now, if you take that, like on a micro scale, and you start making it larger and larger and larger, there is no way that we have not influenced what our atmosphere and what our planet is doing. Right. And so there, that just doesn't make sense. So I think that's when it starts to click a bit. And if that still doesn't work, I think what I usually have found great success in is my show Food Forecast was taking something that people adore, like maple syrup in New England, and then talking to a seventh generation sugarer that can not only tell you that within his time, his family's time, because of all the logs and the diaries and the records, using history and a product that people really like to show that agricultural change is huge. People trust farmers, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, they're, they're going to say, yep, that that means something that the the amount they get, the seasons are, are shifting. Nobody will fight that either. And so then when you take that from the micro of New England up to a macro, I think it starts to make more sense. So that's usually what I would, I guess that would be advice is saying, take it down to right in their neighborhood. Cause that's all people care about. They don't see the, the macro and that's too big for them. And it's too scary. Yeah. And so the psychology, I've talked to my therapist a lot about this. If you're worried about paying your bills by the end of the month and paying your rent, that you don't have time to worry that the whole world is warming at an accelerated rate. Right. It's too much. Sure. You know, yeah. <laughs> if a tornado is, has a better shot at hitting you because you've changed, you know, pavement from wild grasses, we start to care a little bit more and yeah. we start uh, feeling that it's so maybe that's a, like a model of going into coronavirus that starts to make it more local, more relevant to somebody's life. And, and then the science isn't even really science. It's obvious. You know, right. it, it is just it's just fact in your face fact and here's yeah. how it worked and here's how it didn't work and so i think that's i guess the thing that i've learned over time but yeah it's it's presenting that data and and getting people to 
to react based on that. I wonder, like talking about just sort of those those grassroots actions that people can do. I'm thinking more so in the climate change front here of, you know, as you say, just yeah. replacing a driveway with, you know, something more permeable or something like that. Like mm-hmm. what what are the things that resonate with people that, that, that move them to action and that can make a difference on a small scale? That's the thing is I just did this. It's not too late. My new segment on ABC News Live. I just did one on COVID waste. And it got yep. people really fired up because it kind of comes at that cross-section or that intersection of perhaps people that don't believe the science of masks. They're like, why would you have a mask anyway? Definitely right. don't want to see you litter it. And there's not one uh, plastic in the ocean denier. You know, we right. don't have those. It's That's there. Not- yeah, you see. <laughs> it's there. So you start with an environmental impact that people cannot refute. And then what can we do about it? And that's when it gets exciting. So like I did that story and then I have found this last year, I found these little strips that um, are tiny and they come in a, one envelope for 32 washes of laundry detergent in a strip instead oh, of wow. a giant bottle of plastic that you have, sure. that really those plastics are often the ones that then become microplastics in the ocean. So I just, it's not necessarily, I guess it's activism because I have a million followers on Instagram. I post it. I say, Hey, this has worked for me. I'm not promoting. I bought these things myself. Nobody paid me to do this, but I didn't know about them until a year ago. I'd like to make sure you all know about them. So like making simple changes that still work. My clothes are clean. They smell fine. You know, <laughs> they can, <laughs> can do lots of things to alter that. But you think of just in the last year, what my family has saved in giant plastics, laundry detergent. And yeah, yeah that's grassroots. But every single bottle, not only requires that some of the big labels start to think about finding this other way of doing things, but also just reduces the amount of pollution that we have. So it's like those tangible things that are right in front of us um, that are not as obvious because like people know that lights equal coal burning equals greenhouse gas emissions. I think, I think that's pretty clear at this point. And I know that they want to save money. And so they know how to do that. And they know LEDs and like that stuff's been around for too long, but it's like the new stuff that I think that I keep highlighting on a personal level only helps and gets, me excited because I love learning about new stuff. I mean, I haven't used regular cellophane in forever because I have these beeswax covers that work sure. just well or better. Those are great. Yeah, we have a couple of those too. We love those. Yeah, there's just ways to do it. And I think I, I'm like the non-fun mom. I'm like, we're not, we don't need balloons. There's lots of other ways to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> there's lots of things. I'm the I'm Debbie Downer at a party like, oh, balloons. <laughs> But there is something too to just kind of to to normalizing that, and and as you say, like if you can get it out in front of your fans and more people demand that, you know, even if it's just a simple change like laundry detergent, you know, the industry then starts taking notice, right? And they say, oh, maybe we need to manufacture yeah. more of that. People are buying more of that. There's more mm-hmm. demand for it. Uh, I want to back up for a second too and just ask a little more about GMA because I'm I'm really curious. Like I I, I had heard somewhere that one of your goals growing up was to be on the Today Show. And I grew up like with a with a fascination for that show too. Like my mom always had it on in the yeah. background and just. But GMA now has been number one for I think it's like the last eight years. You guys have been the number one morning yeah. show. Like, what do you think is the the special sauce, so to speak, and in, in what makes GMA so special and and just makes it resonate with with so many people now? Well, that's the thing is I think you can get news everywhere, right? You can. Sure. I mean, you can get news however you want it, wherever you want it. And that can be overwhelming and confusing for people. I think that what we do and our producers, you know, do a pretty good job every day is saying what matters most, what do people need to know, and how can we tell them that still in an entertaining fashion? And I think that's what we're doing. We choose people and places and things that hopefully impact everybody. I mean, I I, I think about my mom in Michigan a lot. I think about my grandma 
outside of Chicago, anywhere that's not New York and L.A. And I don't think we succeed in this every day, but I think that we do tell a story for a large audience that, you know, at the end is still entertaining and is still fascinating for everyone. I think there should be more weather, but, you know, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, no, I think – and then the people. You know, you can't go wrong when you have someone as generous and as genuinely caring as Robin. And I don't think that the people at the Today Show are terribly mean or – you know, like everybody has special, special people. But I think that ours are extra special. I think that Robin's extra special. I think that George is extra special. I think Michael is too. And I like to think that all of that matters, either on an individual level, like I don't, you know, especially now, but even when I was in the studio, I didn't get a lot of chance to interact with them. I don't have time. That's why me being in my basement actually doesn't look any different than when I was in the (laughs) studio. But you can tell from behind a person's eyes when you watch television what their intent is. You can tell Mm. how much they genuinely know about the, the subject matter that they're in. And I think that we do have the best people for that. So whether that works, and people will always say, well, it's chemistry, it's chemistry. I'm like, I think it's, it is, you know, but it, but it comes from a genuine care from behind the eyes is what yeah. I would say. Well, there's a culture, too, I feel like that, you know, the people on the show rotate and change throughout the years. And, you know, you, one person well, leaves, <clears throat> another one comes in or you add a new person or whatever. <laughs> And part of it is just the culture that's created there. And, you know, everybody has to buy into that and be a part of it. And you bring somebody new in, they assimilate to that as well, right? And it seems like Robin and George in particular are kind of leading that charge, right? And, and just their their generosity and, and sort of, I don't know, that, that's how it feels from a viewer standpoint anyways. Yeah, and I think that that's what you're reading that correctly in that I think they both are the utmost professionals. So they lead in that way. And, and show you, I always say they show you with grace and like how to do things. If you yeah. And if I ever have a question, I know I can go, I usually go straight to Robin and I ask her, you know, and I don't feel that there's a wall up that doesn't allow for that. And I think that's what the viewer feels too. Definitely. I want to ask too about, you have this show Hearts of Heroes that's on uh, Saturdays mm-hmm. on ABC, part of Lytton's Weekend Adventure. You're, you're already so busy as, you know, an author, a meteorologist. Like what drew you to that show? What makes you want to sort of share these stories about, you know, people who, who rescue others and help help restore and rebuild their lives? Well, ever since I left Hurricane Katrina, which was my first big storm to cover, which is quite a boot camp of telling stories in a storm, uh, I was there for a week. I was in a van with just my photographer sleeping in the van, you know, no toilets, no anything. Yeah. And I would look at these people who came in who were the heroes. And I felt even then that I didn't get to cover them as much as I would have wanted. Fast forward, 15 years and I have done hundreds of storms, floods, fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, doesn't matter what what the natural disaster is. I've watched these people go in, do their job seamlessly. A lot of times, even in tornadoes, when I'm storm chasing, I'd be right there and I'd get to see that first true first responder, you know, watch that happen. And I'm always in awe and they don't have time to talk right then, nor would I be interrupting them. But I thought what a great show idea to be able to hear when it's appropriate later from the hero, from the person who you never get to talk to because they're too busy working, you know, yeah. uh, not only about that storm, but what we can do to make things better for them in the future, you know, and they deserve it. You think about this, about bravery and about service. And these are the people who are doing it day in, day out, especially during a pandemic. House fire, you know, doesn't stop. House fires yeah. don't stop. Wildfires don't stop. And so I think that even now, even more, it is such a special show to be able to highlight these people, let them talk, let them tell us what the what it felt like from their point of view, and then honor them 
and that I could not say no to a show like that. It also, you know, a lot of times if I'm there for a week, I leave and I have like storm pen pals, like in Hurricane Michael. I had people who I still write often. We we keep in touch. And I think that it allows the story to be a reminder in people's heads. It doesn't just go away. A storm like Katrina or Florence or Michael, these people will be hurting forever from it. It will change and alter what the landscape of not just their land looks like, but their psyche, their lives. If they lost people, if they got injured, you know, you don't think about all of those things a year, two, five, ten years later, but they, they'd never end. And even just to get a mailbox after something like Storm Surge and Hurricane Michael, to get yeah. mailboxes back up, to think of the gratitude that you have for the mail to be able to come to your to your door again. Um, those are the things I think that this show can and already does, but will even more in the future be able to uh, showcase and remind people. Uh, it's a... Uh... It's resiliency, I guess, right? These people are... Yes, and that's what I think the show shows. Totally. Mm-hmm. Shifting gears for a minute to kind of happier stuff, um, I part of what I what I love about your job and what would, you know, what I think I would like about it is you've sort of become one of the de facto uh, Disney parks <laughs> correspondents for ABC. Like, <laughs> you know, they send you down to, to different openings at Toy Story Land or, you know, you get to go around the world to a bunch of Disney parks for the last several years. But I, I saw on Instagram recently that uh, there was a picture of, of you, your brother and your stepmom with Dale and Goofy from it looked like yeah. like the early 90s. <laughs> like, I'm a big yep. Disney parks fan. Like, what what are some of your earliest memories of of going to the parks. Oh my gosh. We were lucky enough to have my grandmother lived in Deerfield, Florida, so South Florida, and my other side, my aunt lived in Coral Springs, which is also Fort Lauderdale, but yep. um so we would go to Florida almost every year. My dad would get us in the car, we would drive the 24 hours, which is wild to me. Like, why did we do wow. that? <laughs> I yeah. guess it was I guess it was money, but my goodness. Was it nonstop like just rotating drivers and just Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. No, did yeah. not even rotating drivers. Just my dad would do it. Just he just do it. My parents <laughs> all. Wow. Yeah. And this is before my stepmom. Then my stepmom came in, so yeah, she would rotate in. But gotcha. We would drive all the way down, and a lot of times we could convince them, like, let's just do one day in Orlando, one yeah. day, you know. And so that was a way that we got to see Disney or any of the parks more often than I think most kids would have, because we always had that annual trip to go see our family, and. Boy, I, I have such positive, I feel like everything happens there. I feel like I kind of got to stamp my life almost every year by making that trip. And it meant yeah. a lot to, us to be able to have that time with our family, to be able to, you know, live out our Disney dreams, because that's what you really do when you're there. And so to then get a job working for Disney through ABC, and then to have them say, hey, would you, you know, would you want to cover this? I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I think so. And fortunately, I work with a producer, a meteorologist, Samantha, who is, she is the concierge of Disney. This is, she's like the adult that loves Disney, you know what I'm saying? Like to that weird level, but like, it's okay. Because when we go, (laughs) she knows how everything works. She's she's next level. And I've loved enjoying it with her and then bringing the kids in. So it's been a really fun, and just doing the new openings. I mean, Star Wars, to be able to be there and feel that, after uh, the kids and I, we all had like caught up on all the Star Wars. It felt so otherworldly. And then yeah. to see Harrison Ford and to see everybody come out of, you know, the Millennium Falcon and do that big pressing. It didn't feel like a pressing. It felt like we were actually there 
watching like history be made and start. Right. It was it was very surreal, and I love. Well, that's what I was curious about too. Is sort of you know having to work some of these events. Like, does it does it lose any of the magic or any of the luster? You know, being behind the scenes or, or hearing some of these stories, or does it make you appreciate it more? Oh, appreciate it so much more, and and, and make me even more of a Disney nerd because uh, even thinking about we did the around the world to all the Disney parks right. in a week. And yeah. that was, you know, that's the ultimate Disney fans, I'd say, goal <laughs> would be to yeah. do that. Maybe not in a week because we did not have enough time at every park. But right, right. we started that journey in Anaheim. And so, of course, where it all started, we started. And to go up in the Matterhorn, which was the ride that always scared me because we did California a couple of times when I was younger. We had cousins out there in L.A. and San Diego. Um so to be that that ride always freaked me out because I would hear that guy screaming through the park and you'd be like, I don't know if I want to go on that when you were right. young. Yeah. And to be able to go through that Matterhorn and see all of the writings on the wall, like people have, you know, etched in there that have worked over the years to see the basketball court that is was put in for workers. That's like one of yeah. the old Disney myths that people right. have proven is true. And to really see it. Yeah. And to know it's there. And to really see it and to stick my head out of the Matterhorn with Mickey Mouse, look over Walt Disney's original dream and then to know that I was about to embark on a trip to all that had come after if that's not inspiration I don't know what it is you know like yeah. you could talk a billion times over about what Walt Disney believed and, and the sayings that in the quotes that come from him that mean a lot but I really felt that up there I felt like this guy thought about the strangest concept you come to somebody and say I want to create a park where people come in and all these characters it's weird it's strange yeah, you know right, and but right, he right. It. and he dreamed and he dreamed and he dreamed and my mom used to say that to us um growing up all the time if you dream it you can believe it the world will believe it you know just to go on that you need somebody to inspire you that way and you need someone to support you so that it really can happen because there is something to that and going back to the today show that's what i i I based my dreams on was like, okay, I see something that I want. I put it in my passwords every day. I put in today show 10, today show yeah. 10. Cause by 2010, I wanted to be at the today show. Granted they, I did like a weekend stint there and then they decided they didn't want a weekend person. And I was like, okay. Mm. So ABC opened up and look at what it's been able to do. And, and it kind of brought me roundabout back to Disney, you know, yeah. so it's a very, it means more than, it probably even looks like at the surface or more than I even think about. So thank you oh, for letting me think about that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I'm, I'm I'm happy you got a chance to share that. And and you know, one other thing I'm I'm thinking about too. Just you talked about inspiration there. You've been very open. You know, you wrote your book Natural Disaster and have have been very open about some of your own struggles, uh, eating disorders, depression, mm -hmm. things like that. One of the things that like just thinking about sort of how you don't realize an impact that you have. Like I told my sister that I was going to interview you, and I didn't even know if she mm -hmm. had a concept of like who you were or anything. And she wrote me mm -hmm. back and she said. Oh, that's great. She actually has narcolepsy too. My sister has narcolepsy. And she said, yeah. uh, you know, I was watching Ginger when I was pregnant because I was just so nervous about being off my meds during that time and like not knowing if I could handle it and knowing that Ginger had narcolepsy and shared that and was able to have two kids like that gave me all the confidence. Mm. It's like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, Can I share that with wow. her? And she was happy for that. But just like a as a public figure, it must be it must be scary to open up that personally to people, right? You know what? That that first time of doing it in the book, I mean, I, I had certainly said things publicly before, but I really hadn't had an opportunity to allow people to get me to know me better. Um, yeah. You know, they can't get to know you in the 30 seconds that you have on TV. Sure. So they have this image. And I had 
I had always yearned to allow that, you know, complex relationship to develop a little that should develop between, I think, between people who trust someone about what their, you know, information is coming from them and who they are. But that night before my book went to print, I woke up in the middle of the night and I said to my husband, I can't do this. This is going to ruin me. Oh, my gosh. People are going to know. They're going to know. Why am I doing this? You know, and I had a real genuine freak out. And he said to me, if you don't rattle someone if if someone doesn't like you after this because of what you say then you will not help the 99% of the others who are going mm. to be so happy with this and he was so right in saying that because i had gone into that book saying i am not going to wear a pastel sweater and sit on the cover and just be a nice girl that they know from that's not a book right. that's yeah. anything. and and i'm too it, it's a memoir is a weird word anyway like a, just a memoir with nothing in it that has no relevance like it had to shake and it had to do and it didn't even shake as much. I mean, it was combed over nine times by lawyers. So believe me, it's <laughs> much dirtier and much worse. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what started, stood out and what came out of that were the stories that mattered the most and the ones that have now I see how much they've helped other people. I have countless emails. I'm telling you, they, I still get them. I still get direct messages. And they go all the way to, you saved my life. And I'm like, wow. what? No way. Um, yeah. And I get those because... You know, I think always of this one story, a mother who has three children, she said, I had no idea who you were. I've never seen you on TV, but I've been struggling. So one of my friends gave me your book and she said, I read the first line in the intro. I read the rest of the intro and then I checked myself into a hospital because wow. you had it. And she said, I was going to take my life. I would have taken my life from my children, from my husband. But because you said it's okay to go to the hospital, I went. And I was like, wow, okay, yeah. that's what this book is for. And for the, it was really healing in the part I didn't anticipate for myself. I had no idea how much it would mean for me to finally stand up and not just in my personal life, but in my public life, say, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, I guess I don't care. Yeah. And that power in knowing who you are and that honesty with yourself and with others is the most healing and surreal moment for me probably in my whole life because then I realized how beneficial it was, not just to everybody else, but to myself, you know, so that I'm writing a second book because I know that there are parts of my story that I did not share, not even that were cut because they weren't even written in the first place, uh, because I know what they can do for people now. And I'm hoping that I finally heal by saying them out loud. Yeah. It, it's weird how that works, right? That like you're mm-hmm. you're almost doing it for yourself and then all these other it's it's how I feel yeah. about this podcast. It's like, you know, it's yeah. it's it's a healing thing for me. Uh, but then other people take benefits from it and you go, oh, well, OK, good. I, I'm glad I'm helping people. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it's wild how that works. Um, well, thank you for, for sharing all that too. And for, you know, just helping everybody. Um, one last question, just getting back to GMA, um, and sort of what we talked about at the beginning of, you know, you've got this great home studio set up now, but there is that camaraderie piece. And, you know, a lot of the team is, is back in Times Square. Like how eager are you to get back there or how, (laughs) like, what, what do you feel like your timeline is on that? Do you know yet? Or is it, is it going to be just kind of a judgment call? I feel so grateful, number one, that I have a workplace that allowed me to do this, to yeah. keep other people safe, to get my family safe. Um, nobody knows, I don't think. <laughs> I think we're all in a state of kind of, I don't know. I know that we will stay here as long as we possibly can to know that it will make everyone at work safe and my family. Like, that's really the end of it. Sure. I'm not itching I, as much as I thought I would be because I know 
the overall health and general well-being is the most important thing to me. So like I, I keep joking, I could stay in my basement forever, <laughs> probably not in my basement forever. But could I do this and, and could I wake up and see my children wake up once? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could keep doing this. You know, that part and that balance, if that's possible to do from here, I will do it as long as I possibly can because I'm finding, I'm also super efficient. I find not to take, a, you know, the commute is long, can be long. Even when you're at work, you know how that goes. You're in a workplace. It's nice because you're social and you enjoy that time, but I can easily waste an hour after right. I get done totally. yeah. chatting around, gossiping, doing my, you know, like that's, that's important for life. But like within that hour, I've written a whole segment for, for it's not too late on ABC News Live. You yeah. know, like I get my head down here. I have my own little space and I'm in my little, like, like efficient and work pod and I find it so helpful. So, yeah, I'm I'm good to stay as long as it will keep everybody healthy. And then the day that we have audience come back or that we can have guests on the show, that's when I should be back, Yeah, I think. And that feels like it's really far away. <laughs> All right, there we go. Ginger Z. Lots of stuff there, huh? I mean, I feel like I could have gone on twice as long. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a lot to cover. And obviously, you heard at the beginning, I had completely forgotten that she and her family had had COVID. I remember hearing about it at the time now, like as she was saying it, it was like, oh yeah, but it's funny. Like I, I do prepare for these interviews. I go back and do a fair amount of research on my guests and, you know, write up some rough questions in advance and sort of know where I want to take the conversation. But for some reason, I just, I had missed that data point. And when she said it, I was like, oh yeah, that's totally right. That's the first person that survived COVID that I've talked to on the show. And uh, it's a reminder that, you know, we're all, pretty darn close to people that uh, that have had it you know one or two degrees of separation is it so stay healthy keep wearing those masks keep social distancing all right that's it for today's show thank you for joining me i am at heath Rosella on twitter and instagram give me a follow give me a shout new show on thursday subscribe so you make sure you're the first one to get it in your feed i'll talk to you then have a great day stay safe